Hello, everyone, and welcome to Salem Happenings, a show digging into the issues you're all talking about around the city. Today, we're joined by former city art planner Deborah Greel, Salem Gazette reporter Will Dowd, and from Salem State University, Professor Rebecca Haynes and Gwendolyn Roseman, a retired academic administrator. I'm Dustin Luca with the Salem News. The guy off screen is SATV producer Alan Hanscom, and we're joined today by James Geisler, the executive director of the North Shore Alliance of LGBTQ plus youth. So to kick things off here, the month of June is one of the year's brightest for a whole list of reasons. The warm weather arrives, downtown hits that perfect little sweet spot of life and bustle, and as crowds come out, so too do the pride flags. But what perhaps doesn't get verbalized as much is the impact that their synchronous display throughout Salem every June has. You see the waves of support for the LGBTQ community just pouring from every direction, and it's a statement of allyship in the face of intolerance and hate. But the need to go for that allyship doesn't go away on July 1st. It's a full-time need in our world. And James is here to talk about kind of how this allyship is an around-the-clock mission of Wood City Mall. We all know the organization by its acronym, NAGLI, but for many in Salem, it's also known as a vital lifeline. So, Will, I know in the Gazette you had just a great, great piece on James and kind of the latest with NAGLI, so want to take it away. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming today, James, um, and uh, introducing yourself to the Salem community. I know you came in mid-April, and I don't know how many you know weeks that's been now. But um, how are you acclimating? You know, tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to find Nagley. Sure. Well, first of all, let me say how delighted I am to be in Salem. Um, I'm really coming to love this city, and I can't wait to move here. I'm still living on the South Shore, and the commute is brutal. But uh, soon I will be a full-time resident of your city, and I couldn't be happier. Um, I just, I've been delighted with everything I've encountered here. I uh, have been in the nonprofit world, as, as you mentioned in your story, for, for over a quarter of a century, and I've served a lot of different kinds of organizations. Uh, but this one, this one's kind of special. This one's kind of personal because it has a mission that really pulls at the heartstrings. And so I was absolutely thrilled, but more importantly, I was honored to have been selected and appointed to to lead Nagley um, and to um, see what I can do to help build it even stronger and, and build on the great foundation that's already there. So uh, when we had our interview, I would say probably a couple, like three weeks ago, you had mentioned that your entire career had built up to this actual nonprofit, which I thought was really kind of adorable, cute. This is the fact that, like, you know, you have had all this experience in your and your ten, you know, in your nonprofit in the nonprofit sector um, that, that built up to this is sort of like you know going to be the capstone of your career. But like, take us through sort of some of the um, nonprofits that you've that you've worked with. Well, interestingly enough, I, I started my career in the nonprofit world in an HIV AIDS organization back in the 90s. And I was an event planner uh, for them initially, because back then all the money that was raised for HIV AIDS was done through events. But we soon learned that uh, there were other ways to raise money in the, the more traditional ways of direct mail and major gifts and planned giving. And I started branching into some of that and decided I needed some really good formal training. And so I did enroll at the fundraising school at the Indiana University Center on Philanthropy and um, learned my craft and then honed it with a comprehensive university there in Indianapolis at Butler University, where I was director of corporate and foundation relations. So I learned a lot about grant writing and working with the corporate and foundation community, which has served me very well in my career. Uh, after that, I worked for a cancer support organization where we, we ended up building our brand new building to support the organization while I was there. Um, after 20 some years in Indiana, though, and a becoming an empty nester, I decided it was time to move where I really wanted to live, a nice bright blue state like Massachusetts. So we moved out here in 2008 
uh, where I was working in an ALS organization. But most recently, I was serving uh, the Harvard Glee Club Foundation in Cambridge, which was uh, a support organization for the Harvard Glee Club, which is a, a tenor-based choral organization. But you're right, I do feel like everything I did, I, I learned something at each place I was, and I'm able to put all those skills uh, in, in place now for Nagley, whether it's grant writing or corporate relations or direct mail. Uh, each of these jobs that I've had in the past has kind of prepared me to bring those things all together. And to be able to bring them all together in service of GLBTQ youth is, is a thrill. Um, and uh, from what I learned too was that you have degrees in vocal performance. Is that true? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. My, my my undergraduate and graduate degrees are both in voice performance and choral conducting, but uh, that was not a career path for me. That was more of a um, something to do on the side, and, and I did sing professionally on the side uh, for quite a long time and directed choirs and churches and synagogues. But my my main career has been in the nonprofit world. Sure. So tell us now, what does Dagley do, and um, sort of the state of the nonprofit and how sure. where 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 its areas of need are right now. So Nagley was founded in 1992. So we are just about heading into our thirty year. So next year we'll celebrate 30 years. And it started out as just a single group meeting in the basement of a church um, where youth were identifying as GLBT, well, back then just GL, uh, before we added all the other letters. Uh, but it was just a safe place for them to be, to, to find other people like them, to know that there were adults that had made it through and gotten to the other side. Uh, and that it was better. Um, so that was our, our roots. And that's why we still refer to our Tuesday meetings as our roots meetings, because that's, that's the core of the program is that, that socialization um, once a week with a, a group of like-minded people. Over the years, it's been added to, there's now a middle school group for kids that are younger than the 13, 14 cutoff um, that meets. And we also have a group that is specifically dedicated to transgender and non-binary youth and their allies called Transcendence that also meets weekly. At one point, they decided they really needed to add a, a program for parents and educators. Uh, so we have EPIC, which is Educators and Parents in Communication, that is a facilitated group to help parents navigate this strange world. Because let's face it, most parents of GLBTQ youth didn't navigate some of those challenges when they were growing up. So they need some help understanding uh, what their youth are going through. So those are the four main groups that we do. We also do um, educational events throughout the year, whether it's in finance and budgeting, how to balance uh, your checking account, or how to apply for financial aid, how to find a job. So all kinds of educational programs are planned throughout the year, as well as just pure social events, um, you know, a dance, uh, a holiday party. Uh, I'm, I'm told that they do giving around uh, Thanksgiving time and a holiday, holiday party uh, in December which is just a great time to get together, share some food, um, maybe have an open mic, poetry slam, you know, do some fashion shows, dancing, fashion shows. It, it's been yeah. all over the place. So I, I think that the, what we're really trying to do is to the empower and educate, honor and respect our GLBTQ youth. I really want to mention just real quick, uh, Steve Harrington, your predecessor, you know, the COVID situation really took the wind out of his sails as far as like the celebration around his retirement. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how he changed the nonprofit over the, his six year tenure? Because you right. said, well, yeah. again, when, when Steve came on board, they were still meeting, I think, in the basement of the church. 
So the mm -hmm. fact that we are now in a 5,200 square foot facility with multiple rooms and and everything we could need to, to provide for the for the youth says about about all of it. You know, I mean, he mm -hmm. really did bring this organization from the basement of a church to a high profile spot in the city. Um, it's it was interesting to me that uh, within my first couple of weeks on the job, I had met the mayor. I had had coffee with the police chief. I'd gotten a letter from one of our state representatives and was recently invited to a roundtable with uh, Senator Markey. Um, and I'm, that just tells you how Steve elevated this organization and brought it to a much higher level. Um, and and we, we owe him a great debt of gratitude for that. And we will be honoring him. Um, yes. his, his, his retirement will not go uncelebrated, un unfettered. Uh, there are some plans in the work that we are not releasing just quite yet, but okay. um, we will be acknowledging Steve at our upcoming fundraiser, Derby Pride, on the 27th of June and thanking him there publicly. But that's not it. There's a lot more planned. So what are, uh, you know, you had mentioned that there were some resources and rooms there. Can you kind of give us a little bit of an overview of like what students have at their disposal when they sure. come to the youth center real quick? Absolutely. When you enter the Nagley Center, the it, I guess it, it kind of looks almost like a store in the mall because that's where our Pride Place Market is. And uh, so in some ways, I guess that's our front. You can come in and buy pride flags and swag and all kinds of good stuff there. But if you look in the corner, there's a resource center with all kinds of printed resources available for this, for youth or for anyone, for parents, for youth, um, dealing with a variety of topics, everything from safe sex to housing to um, testing. Um, the list is, is endless, the, the types of resources that are available there. And next to that is a little health and wellness office where we can um, contract with a third party that can conduct uh, confidential HIV and STD, STI testing, can do some um, sexual assault counseling um, in that room, a very private small counseling room. We have a large staff room where the staff can meet that also houses our EPIC group when the parents and uh, educators are in, in house. Of course, we have the, the typical, the, you know, the administrative office and the supply, supply room. But then we have a, a great lounge where the kids can just come in and crash. It's lots of comfy furniture, has a big TV in there. It's got um, game stations. Um, it's got DVDs and, and traditional board games as well as video games um, where the kids can play. That's where we hold our, when we're in person, that's where we hold our support groups. It's a very comfy youth-oriented room. It very much looks like a, a youth room. Uh, as, a, as a dad, I'm tempted to go in and clean up all the time and tidy it up, but I have to keep telling myself, that's their space, leave it alone. Um, we have a boutique, which is, is in the process of being renovated, um, where free clothes are available. Uh, for, for, for young people, um, whether they are housing insecure and just don't have the clothing they need, or whether they're in transition or contemplating transition and just would like to try on clothes that might be more appropriate to their gender expression and gender identity, they have the opportunity to do that. We'll, we will soon be adding a, a vanity and a lighted mirror and makeup and makeup brushes and hair blow dryers and so forth so that they can experiment with uh, makeup and hair as well. We have a little changing area where a private changing area where they can change and we'll have a full length mirror for them. So that room right now looks more like a thrift shop, but we're, we're going to be renovating that over the next uh, couple of months, uh, thanks to a generous gift from a local church. I think one of the one of the things we're proudest of is our tech center library. The tech mm -hmm. center has multiple, I, I've lost count, 12 or 15 computers in there, both Macs and PCs. 
where students can come in and surf the net and research things maybe they aren't comfortable researching at home um, with some guidance of course and some oversight here um, or do their homework or uh, we have one student one um, college student who comes in to work on his thesis uh, when he needs a quiet place to work and needs the technology we've just been granted a couple of brand new multifunction and person will be installed there but surrounding the whole tech center is a curated library of both GLBTQ and non-GLBTQ uh, books and resources, uh, both fiction and non-fiction. So that library, again, is, is curated so that we're, we know that this safe information for the, the youth to access. And then we have our big party room, uh, which is full of everything from a ping pong table, a foosball table, a little uh, pool table. Um, we have a setup for uh, garage band kind of hangout with a drum set and an amp and a fantastic lighting system. We have a little poetry slam stage kind of area set up. There's a piano in there. And we've got kids that come in and just jam for a couple hours, which sometimes makes it hard for me to get my work done. But uh, the, the drums are over there banging away and the guitars and, and they're having a great time just um, exploring their musical side and, and each other. And it's, uh, it's really a wonderful way for the kids just to interact. In support of all that, of course, we have a, a good sized kitchen and pantry where we can um, we can actually provide a meal for up to 120 people on China in the space. So uh, it, it's a well, well outfitted uh, organization. That's awesome. Um, and just basically, I mean, that that's it for me uh, as far as questions goes, you know, opening it up to the, to the group here. Um, you know, one thing that I know that uh, the flight of LGBTQ students or, or young people during COVID has been pretty, I mean, there's been some struggles that, that they've had, you know, and I don't know if everyone else, if anyone else in the um, group has, you know, you know, or is aware of that or not, but, um, you know, I didn't know if you guys wanted to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. I have a related question and that is, do you find, are there, are there kids who are not white kids Hispanic what, what's the diversity within of kids coming and taking advantage and and how can we reach out more to those co communities who may not be as comfortable as other communities in, in joining you sure well and we, it's interesting that you should bring that up I just had a conversation recently about opening a satellite program in Lynn specifically mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we would like to, to reach out more to a BIPOC community. And uh, we, we have not been as successful in that as we'd like to be. So mm -hmm. I will be doing some touring around in Lynn with uh, a guide who says he can introduce me to all the people I need to know so that we can okay. open a satellite okay. in Lynn. We have a satellite in, um, in Gloucester right now, and we have Nagley North as well up in, um, oh, the, the city just ran out of my head, Newberry. Newburyport. Newburyport. Uh, so we, we are accustomed to doing satellite groups and then the nice thing is is when we do a big event in the space it's very easy to reach out to our satellite programs and bring people in from the satellites for the big special events so yes we are making a concerted effort to uh intentionally reach out to the bipoc community to make sure that we reflect um more of what what the, the community is and and let people know that this is a safe place do you know if I can do one more thing? You know the name Alex Newell, N E W E L L. Uh, I do now. Okay, uh, at your convenience, Google. He is a Lynn native. Okay. That you may I don't know what I, I don't know what you might be able to reach out to him to do, 
but he is he's a star. All that right. boy does good. So um, if you find out about him, you may be able to think about ways in which you could connect with him. And his family and friends are still in Lynn. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Well, also, James, I'm on the board of the North Shore Community Development Coalition. Um, so um, actually, uh, uh, one of the women who runs their community program is actually a transgender woman. Um, and they have an ambassador program. And we just had a board meeting this morning. So if you need to any introductions to the North Shore CDC and their ambassadors, um, um, many of them are Spanish speaking ambassadors um, just in the Point neighborhood. I think um, for them to have a greater sense of also what Magley does, I think would be really important as well. Great, thank you for that. So um, are you open? I mean, at some point I would love to, Steve is a, is a really good friend and I'd love to just come by sometime and say hello. I could reach out to you and let you know. Sure. We, are, we are open. Um, it's not i couldn't give you specific hours I'm, I'm here i'm still living in weymouth so i'm commuting so i'm here only like three days a week um other staff and volunteers try to keep it open as much as we can and um we are going to begin our friday evening drop-in hours again very soon we have been 100 percent virtual for the last 15 16 months we um have experimented with some in-person events outdoors but it looks like after the july 4th break we are going to begin our Tuesday night meetings in a hybrid fashion with some students or some youth in the room and some joining virtually. And we'll do that for a while, but our hope is that we'll be completely open at the latest Labor Day week, after Labor Day. If we can open earlier than that, we, we certainly want to. Um, and if the demand is there and the comfort levels are there, we, we would love to get open sooner. Yeah, I, I'd love to come and chat. Um, I'm also involved with the Essex County Community Foundation. Um, so as, as a person um, somewhat new to Salem, it looks like you've already reached out to lots of people, um, yeah. but I'm happy to do some more connections um, if, if that's I'd, I'd love to have you drop, drop by and visit. Absolutely. Let's, let's set something up. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, um, one of the things that uh, I touched on in my article was the fact that Nagley needs more unrestricted aid and they also need to they need to get to the point where they can have two staffs at stoop staff members in the center at, at one time right right James that's one of the things that you guys that's one of the goals that you have which we is very to, much like to add additional staff we need some program staff in place we have a we have a dynamic program director right now but he's volunteering Tony. so Tony we, yeah, right we'd love to yeah Tony so we'd, we'd love to be able to add him to the staff uh, at some point but we I think what you're referring to is is we we must have two adult chaperones if for lack of a better word in the space at any time that there are youth in the space and so um they can be volunteers so we're always looking for volunteers to help us we do have volunteer training for them and and guidelines and all that um of course all of our volunteers are vetted with corey and sorry you know vetting but um yeah the, the our only limit to how often we can be open is is how much we can we call it staffing even though they're not paid staff but uh, we have to staff the place with two adults at all times so i'm wondering if if you know somehow we can drop in the information if there are parents or if there are teens watching this how to get in touch with you well, the nice thing about Nagley is our, our website is so easy, nagley.org. It's just that easy. And it's very easy to reach out to us through that website. 
Um, of course, all our contact information is there on the website, nagley.org. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, before we move on, uh, Rebecca, was there anything that you wanted to ask or get in there? You know, I was just going to remark that Salem has a wonderful arts and culture, as well as the status of being a no place for hate community, which I think is a wonderful combination um, as the site for Nagley. And I was just wondering whether as a newcomer to Salem, you know, you'd noticed anything about how these aspects of the local culture here are able to inform or enrich the work that you're doing with the youth. My, my impression and based on, you know, limited exposure so far is that the arts and culture nature of the space just breeds an openness that you don't find in other places an openness to expression i see people in the streets expressing themselves very artfully or artistically uh, that i didn't i don't see in other places around around the commonwealth and i think that expression of of themselves makes it so much easier than for the people that we serve, the young people that we serve, to say, hey, I can express who I am as well. You know, if if I see the, uh, you know, 50-year-old lady in the grocery store with pink hair and, you know, then maybe it's not, maybe this is a safe place for me to, you know, dress the way I, I want to dress. And I, I do get a vibe from Salem that it's very open and accepting, no matter who you are or how you express yourself, which I think is just a dynamic, uh, wonderful thing. That's really lovely. Thank you. And thank you very much, James, for joining us today. Um, you're welcome to stick around, um, but we're going to move on. June is, of course, not the only month to show support for those in the LGBT community. The LGBTQ community, there we go. It also carries Juneteenth, the nationally recognized day commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. For many parts of the country, including Salem, awareness of Juneteenth didn't truly become mainstream until the numerous social justice issues in 2020 and a scheduling conflict at the White House that put the holiday on every newspaper front page. <laughs> that goes to show you just how important it is that we, as Salem Happenings, acknowledge Juneteenth here. So being a Saturday, the observance in Salem won't take place until Monday, June 21st scheduled for 2 p.m. at Raleigh Plaza if you're able to make it out. Uh, and we've seen a lot of conversations kind of begin and end in the past year throughout the pandemic through the different marches and rallies that went through the city. And by the way, if you want to see a great conversation, check out Hamilton Hall's uh, Unmasking Museum. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but even beyond that, you know, after everything we've seen in the past year, there's still communities just beginning to recognize Juneteenth. So how do we feel about the state of things and where do we feel that this conversation should go next? Well, when we talk about, as we have been a lot, a lot lately, when we talk about erased history, it's one of those pieces of history that nobody knew, but everybody knew. And in the black community, in most, in many black communities, Juneteenth has been a celebration for, you know, the proverbial 150 years, uh, whereas now it's becoming it's becoming mainstream, which is a good thing. And I thought I would just put in a little bit of, if I may, throw in a little bit of history of what Juneteenth, how it came about. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation Lincoln signed on January 1st of 1863. And a couple of interesting details about that is that the proclamation only applied to Confederate states who were in rebellion. So the emancipation did not reply to 
any of the slaveholding border states who were not actually in rebellion, nor did it apply to uh, those states that were already under union control. Interestingly, Texas was neither. Texas was a full-blown Confederate state, but there was no major fighting. I'm not sure there were even any real battlefields in Texas, and um, mm-hmm. there were there were no notable no notable presence of Union soldiers. So Texans, as they want to do, just kept doing what they wanted to do. Um, when Lee surrendered in on April 9th of 1963. Federal troops set out to inform all of the formerly Confederate states that the war was over. And they got to Galveston, Texas, and they said, not only is the war over, but it's been two and a half years since the Emancipation Proclamation. And they had no idea. There's no, you know, no, no YouTube, no Facebook, nobody knew. Uh, it was really the celebration of Juneteenth. It's about the day that finally, finally enslaved people in the United States. The last of them knew that they were free. Not that they became free, but they found out that they were free. So that's kind of the history around it. Um, Interestingly enough, Texas was the first state to declare it a state holiday as people moved out of Texas and spread the word of this history into black communities in other states, um, it became better and better known. So it's nice to see Korean communities around Salem, around the North Shore, who are acknowledging it. All right, I, I, I'm just like it's, it's, it's so interesting to hear that in history. Like I knew that that the Emancipation Proclamation didn't apply to the Northern states, but I didn't know that about Texas, and I didn't know about like that you know the last kind of Mm -hmm. French to find out about it you know I think this also kind of dovetails into some of the things that you know I've heard numerous people talking about how they didn't know about the Tulsa you know Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. situation you know the the burning of Black Wall Street you know I've Mm -hmm. I only learned about it through like white privilege workshops that I've been in but um you know so it's I'm, I'm like only through celebrations that we'll have, or that, you know, celebrating Juneteenth and, you know, making this part of curriculums, I think okay. will, you know, more people will learn about this stuff. So I don't know if anyone else knew about that. I certainly didn't, um, but I do, you know, so right now, again, with Juneteenth, um, you know, they, they have an organization. I see them every day on Facebook. It's, it's a place to learn more. It's a place to you know listen to you know leaders and communities, and so the gratefulness of of finding out, of learning more, of constantly learning more, um, has as is you know again, it's not just June, it's every month and it's every day, you know, so. Yeah, and you know one one thing that may be of interest to um, some of our viewers here is that Salem State University does have a Juneteenth celebration annually. Gwen, I'm not sure if you know how long it's been going on off the top of your head, but it's been a long time. It's been a while. It's been quite a while. Yes. Yeah, and you know it's it's a beautiful occasion. It's handled so well. Um, what's interesting to me about the way that they're structuring it is it is done with so much intentionality where um, the general guideline is actually that anyone can attend 
but only black community members are permitted to speak or offer a tribute. So it really also elevates the voices of the people for whom the occasion is the most meaningful and frankly gives other folks who maybe are used to their voices dominating conversations a little bit of time to like breathe and practice listening and and learn from the incredibly moving stories and tributes and poetry and you know other things that are shared at this event and at Salem State some some people aren't necessarily aware that actually the professors are only on a nine-month contract we technically aren't working over the summer but people show up for Juneteenth it doesn't matter that we're off contract you know folks are committed to it so I, I think it's wonderful to see it get a broader recognition and um, even officially be added to academic calendars it's it, it's it's good uh, at the company that I work for uh, you're right uh, Rebecca just up you know piggybacking off of what you're saying there was last year they actually made it a corporate holiday so I actually have that day off now which is pretty cool, I think, you know. Yes, yes. As it should be. Yeah. As it should be. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, to kind of piggyback onto the, the history lesson from Gwen initially, you know, there was this, this the Juneteenth was centered around the idea that word finally got back to Texas two and a half years after the emancipation. So there was two and a half years that they were free without realizing it in Juneteenth March. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I feel very guilty being a white person and saying, oh, we got to celebrate Juneteenth this year, when this time last year, I may not have necessarily even known what Juneteenth was. And there's a certain level of kind of poetic justice to that, that, you know, out of everything that's happened in the past year, there was a lot of lessons for people in, you know, the white majority to see that there is a lot of celebrations that are happening right underneath your noses that you've never known about because you just haven't been introduced to it so you know and and that's why i bring up you know the salem united exhibit over at hamilton hall you know if you're looking for an opportunity to learn up on you know voting issues centered around the black vote and things like that that's the place to go yeah and you know I i think that speaks to um just learning how to practice cultural humility right for those of us who are learning about cultures that are not part of the dominant white culture that you know, has kind of characterized mainstream U.S. society. I, I agree with you, Dustin. It It is amazing that I think largely thanks to social media and the ability for voices to be amplified to the point that they can no longer be ignored, we are able to practice cultural humility and say, oh, there are a lot of really important things that we did not know about. And now we can take this time to stop listen and learn and really honor voices that are not those of the majority that's really a growth experience and i hope that it has long-term positive consequences for us as a society you know for the kids coming up with this being normalized is huge i I really think that some of it really points directly to the george floyd the murder of george floyd and i think that um as you said you know the white the white society the white privilege society is opening their eyes in a ways that they they didn't. So then, if they see June Juneteenth coming across their screen, I think people are stopping now and saying, "I didn't know about that." And Tulsa, I didn't know about that, but I want to know about that. I need to know about that. I want my children to know about that. I want all of us to know about that. So, um, and I, I've been following Ibram Kendi. Of course, he was so fabulous to see at Salem State, and ever since then, I've just been captivated by this man. And he just started a podcast how to be an anti-racist podcast. Um, so 
he's such an important voice and here we have him right in Boston. So uh, he's just another, another resource, another wonderful person to follow. So anytime I see him on anything, I'm, I'm right there. So, so. Well, and, and this debate, there should not be a debate around critical race theory. And it's all about learning the history that we were never taught. You know, that the, and, and it, it, it troubles me, it angers me, that there's any debate around it because one would think that people would be eager to learn. And yet there is a fear of learning the other side of the coin. There's a fear of learning truth. And so this, this entire debate is troublesome and I encourage people to look at it critically and say, why is there a debate? Why are people afraid of learning their own history? Because it is United States history. I have to say, not even my parents, who are almost 70 years old, knew what Tulsa, Alabama, or not Tulsa, I'm sorry, Tulsa, mm -hmm. uh, Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma. Yes, Oklahoma. They did not know until NPR played this awesome Blind Spot. If you've ever heard mm -hmm. of Blind Spot, this podcast, they did a really great, like, two, I think actually it's a still part going on. But my parents didn't even know what, the, what, what happened in Tulsa. Like, can you believe See, um, My parents. You can quote me to your parents. Don't, you know, it's okay. Because yeah, it's okay. how would yeah. they have known? How would they have known? We knew, okay? But how would ordinary, everyday white folks down the street ever have known? So I'm glad they watched. I'm glad they know. And they'll yeah, share they, it with others. But no, no guilt. How would you know? You know what One I think a reminder of is the saying that the victors write the history. And to date, yes. in these struggles, yes. who's been coming out ahead? And it's not, I, I think that there's some defensiveness now from people who are concerned that maybe they'll be treated the way that they've treated people of color all these years. And, you know, really, it's just about equity and treating everybody with respect and dignity and valuing everybody's contributions to U.S. society in all their many forms. It really, it is infused throughout U.S. history. Black history is American history. And um, just just acknowledging that is so important. It really is. I think the one thing, you know, we can really leave on the idea of the critical race theory. I think what's happening is, and because we have two teachers here in the, in the room, it's it's really um, been you know the stories that I've been listening to is difficult for the teachers. There's so many teachers that want to teach this, but they're being threatened. You know they want to embrace this. So it'll be interesting to see how this um, starts to unfold in in different states and and within different um, you know communities. So I think it's something to keep keep watch and keep support. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And on that note, I mean, a lot of, you know, the, the pain that has been felt in the past year has kind of come on place. And this is maybe kind of a, a, a bit of um, awful transition, but uh, there's two new leaders in the city of Salem. Um, it's been just a hotbed of change in Salem in the past, you know, couple of months. Uh, in June, in particular, you were talking about a new police chief in Lucas Miller, who was just sworn in from the NYPD a couple of days ago. And uh, then Alan Dion um, in the department has been elevated to chief as well. Um, how are we feeling about these hires? Um, have we had a chance to talk to the new police chief? And what are our early kind of perspectives on, you know, what is now becoming the new face of Salem Police? I think some of the things we're learning is from the stories you're writing. 
because it's it's still COVID. And I know that there was a ceremony yesterday, and I know it was invitation only, where it might have been just you know come on in and and the, you know anybody wants to join. So I think right now um, we are somewhat dependent on on our journalists here to to learn more about them. I think I agree because where we might have been at this event or heard him speak himself and, and drawn conclusions, we are dependent upon what we're reading and upon fair and equitable journalism, which I know we have represented here. Um, I would like to, I, I think when I first saw, when I first read about um, the new chief in Salem, it was, I was like, oh, he's from New York. He's from the NYPD. And I don't think I was alone in that gut reaction. So a couple of the things that I have read about him or quotes that I have seen from, you know, from his story, from his bio, um, have helped me back off a little bit from that, that initial reaction and say, and take a more wait and see kind of uh, position. Um, so I'm curious. I'm curious to see what, how, where this goes. I'm not as, uh, as I was when I first read it. Sure. So I have, uh, I don't know if Dustin's like, have you written stories like within the past week? Cause I am not really sure what you're alluding to when, like what enlightened you about the, so just, I mean, like maybe you get a little bit more concrete for me because I've been away. Yeah. Maybe if you help me, you sorry. No, it's okay. I don't know, did I read it from Dustin? It is entirely possible that I read it from you and then I did a search on him and his history and his bio. Mm -hmm. Then I dug Mm -hmm. deeper, yeah. Yeah. Okay, because from what I understand yesterday, there was some talk about making changes in this story my freelancer wrote, which was he was like, we might have to change a little bit in the police department or there's going to be some changes that are going to come and I hope people are open to that. Dustin, am I wrong? Am no, I wrong? no, that definitely came up. Um, okay. I mean, so what was interesting about the um, what was interesting about the swearing-in ceremony was it was invite only, as what was mentioned just now, um, and because it was invite only, you basically had major business leaders like Biff Misha was there, for example. Um, uh, Jason with uh, LifeBridge was there as well, Jason Etheridge, um, but then you had city leaders in the full police department was there in their dress blues and things like that. So the speech that he gave was very much directed at the police more than anybody else. You know, it was his real first, now that he's been sworn in, now that he's got the hand up, now that he's the chief, here's his first chance to actually speak to his officers. And, you know, one of the things he talked about was how kind of the, the police industry is kind of changing. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations about, you know, putting body cameras on police officers, you know, replacing police officers with civil servants that can do the same kind of job. And, you know, basically kind of staying ahead of, and I can't remember the exact words that he was using, but kind of keeping up with the changing times, though also recognizing that there's still always going to be need for police, you know, the the phrase that he used was you know when when the wolf is at the door who shows up he said something kind of along those lines mm-hmm. so he said you know the, the the world of police work is changing and the way that certain jobs are being done is changing but there's still always going to be a need for police officers and he kind of said that in a you know this is why i applied for the job this is why i still think it's a good idea to be in the police field kind of thing which is all again kind of geared toward the police officers in the room 
You will also wonder if he chose Salem uh, because of the type of leadership that we have and the idea that he could start to implement some changes and be supported in some of these changes and in terms of looking at a liberal city. So, so for that very reason, um, I would have some confidence certainly in him um, because it also sounds like he could be bringing some heart to the job if he's looking at, um, especially if he's looking at changes in community policing, putting the bike, the bike officers back out there, um, recruitment in terms of looking at BIPOC recruitment. So that, that, that'll be interesting to see. So it could be a, a really exciting place for him to be, um, to implement some things that he might feel is needed and, and is important at this time and to elevate the idea of policing again. Because it's, it's an interesting way to look at it because I can't imagine that the leadership in, in the city would have chosen otherwise. And there must have been a reason that he wanted to come here. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that that's an interesting lens. And I, I, just, I agree with that. And I know just, you know, I had an opportunity to sit down with him and have just a really extensive interview uh, last, last week. Last Thursday, last Thursday, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, one of the things that he talked about was how, you know, he started his career in Wellfleet and really wanted to come back. And he was looking at opportunities to be a chief in Massachusetts. And his friend said, hey, Salem just opened up. And he went, ooh, Salem. So he, so Salem was already on his mind. He visited the city in 2005 and was actually able to tell me all the different places he hit. What he remembered seeing at the Salem Witch Museum in 2005, for example. Um, so he knows Salem. He is well-read on Salem. And Salem was very certainly kind of what he had in mind when he was thinking about the last step of his career. So, And it's not uncommon for people who are in executive positions like that to actually look to build. I mean, in the beginning of this, we interviewed James. And one of the things that he likes about that is there's an opportunity at, at, at Nagley is that it's an opportunity to build. There's needs here, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe that could be something that, you know, they're builders, people who are executive, you know, executive directors. Uh, Mayor Driscoll is going to be another one, which is you have the opportunity to build things and change, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah. And on that note, uh, sun is quickly setting on our time today. Uh, on the topic of building things, we've got one more thing on the agenda, and that is Collins Cove. Uh, so thinking about Salem happenings and stuff that's happening in the city, there's been a little bit of change over in the Cove lately, and anybody living out in that part of the city surely noticed it while walking or biking along Webb Street. Living Shoreline has been cleaned up, um, and you know, recently the project had you know literally 90 volunteers out there supporting Salem Sound Coast Watch. Now, I know this whole idea of planting tall grass along waterfront property doesn't necessarily look cute, but it, Deb, I know you were involved with this. That's not necessarily the point, right? Well, um, so this is really interesting. First of all, and, and I and I also hope that we can, uh, you know, give folks that are watching this the opportunity to go into Salem Sound Coast Watch. It's a fascinating website, and it's something that everybody that is interested or or should be interested in in climate remediation um, should be uh, looking through this. So. So what they're doing is is they, they got a grant from the uh, Mass Office of Coastal, Coastal Management, which one of the women who helped grant that actually lives in Salem. So this is one of her pet projects. Um, so yeah, so what they're trying to do is, is replant some plants that were gone. So 
this isn't necessarily eelgrass, but I just want to say that eelgrass, which is one of the most important things that you could have in a living shoreline, 70% of um, Salem Sound, eelgrass in Salem Sound is, is gone. You know, it's, it's probably because of, you know, pollution and all kinds of things. So what they're doing is, um, this is, this is planting native plants in some sand then they're also using a natural um it looks like it's kind of a hemp like material over it to give um, the plants a little bit of time because they're really little you know it's going to take a few years for them to grow and then um, they just put a fence on it they've cleaned up i was just out there yesterday they're cleaning up a whole bunch of the you know this the the stuff that's sort of washing up at high tide so getting rid of that to allow it to grow so so for me, I, I personally think it's just this like really beautiful way to watch our shoreline reclaim itself and as an experiment right now. It is yes. an experiment. We're hoping everything grows. So. It is an ex it is an experiment. Uh, Barbara, you know, uh, Warren, the ex executive director, when I spoke to her like two weeks ago, because of the, the 90 volunteers, Deborah, that you, or, or Dustin, that you had spoken to, um, is this is a pilot program for the state. This is not something that's happening everywhere. And um, it's best. It's an experiment. I will say though that um, if you go on the Salem Coast Watch, you will see that they're working, they're looking at things in Beverly, in Salem, and in Marblehead, um, the whole coastline. Uh, there are maps that you can look at to see what we are most vulnerable, um, you know, in terms of looking at, you know, when we have sea rise. So, and I think if you have kids, you know, just take them over to show them um, and actually maybe maybe talk about that with them and to see, well, let's go next month and see what that looks like. Let's see if, if things have grown because oftentimes things look like they're dead when they're just, you know, quietly, you know, sort of getting into the ground and start growing, especially if we get some good rain. So I know we haven't had rain all week, so. Um, it's, it's a great experiment. Dr. Glenn, any final thoughts before we sign off? Not really, except to say I'm looking forward to going over there because I've been staying not far from Web Street and going to the vet on Web Street. So I think that's going to be a short little day trip, day trip, day hop, day block hop to go down there and see them. Yeah. And I know Rebecca, your kids really enjoy it. Plus, plus, um, I don't know if you've done the walk with the sculptures over there. The sculptures so are oh, on oh. our to-do list. We need to go check them out for sure. Okay, they're going to love it because there's a few over there that they want <laughs> the great big seahorse. Oh, I can't yeah. wait to see them in person. I've looked at them online and it's literally on my list of, okay, these are some of the little outings we need to take around town this summer. So I, I will also um, say to people that are watching, if you have any questions about any of this, you can go onto the website, but you can also reach out to Salem Sound Coast Watch. They're always looking for volunteers. And so it's just a great thing to learn more about our shore, our living, the living shoreline and what will keep it healthy and what we can do to help keep it healthy. Absolutely. So thing, the joy of living in Salem is you're always no more than 10 minutes from the water. Wherever yeah. you are, you can get there. 10 minutes by foot, even. Um, and for anybody who wants more information on that, that is salemsound.org for Salem Sound Coast Watch. 
so that about exhausts our program and agenda for today. For Deb, Gwen, Rebecca, Will, and Alan, thank you for tuning in and accompanying us on this very, very weird year so far. <laughs> uh, enjoy the warm weather. Hug family like you haven't seen them in forever. And be sure to say, hey, if you see any of us outside, enjoying Salem Happenings. Take care.